So we are in the midst of the Beatitudes, well, at least talking about the Beatitudes. Uh, and up here, I, I'm a big fan of Coptic iconography. Uh, and so up here we have our uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. You can tell he's Jesus because he gets a shiny halo. Um, you too can purchase one of those for as low as four easy payments of $9.99. Come and see me about that afterwards. Uh, so we are working our way slowly through the Beatitudes, and we've covered quite a few of them already, uh, and we're up to blessed are the pure in heart. So I might actually, oh wow, it even works. I might actually, would anyone like to read off the screen? I've organized two readers already for other things, but you know, nothing like an impromptu reader. Is anyone a good screen reader who'd like to read through the Beatitudes for us? Any takers? Or am I going to have to do it? Oh, Rod's going to do it. Thanks. And then a voice from heaven spoke. Now when... <laughs> I'm not used to standing in front of everyone. <laughs> oh, so funny. Um, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Self-conscious about saying blessed halfway through? Blessed. Who prefers blessed? And who prefers blessed? Okay, good. Noted. Um, so if you're finding these confusing, then you're reading them correctly, because they are. Uh, the Beatitudes are a mystery. There's an element of paradox inside of them. Uh, we have looked, we've uh, kind of talked about a few ways of looking at the Beatitudes, and I'll try and give you a brief synopsis. But perhaps the best way of understanding the Beatitudes um, is that it's an invitation into seeing and knowing and joining in the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are not primarily descriptive, no, sorry, are not primarily, primarily instructive, they're descriptive. They're not trying to tell you what to do so you get some kind of um, perfect outcome. It's not a self-help tool or do this and reap the benefits. But descriptions of the way things work when God is in charge, the way things work in the kingdom of God. They're describing something that is already happening, which if we choose to, we can work out how to get on board with. An invitation into seeing and knowing a lens, another lens through which you can look at the world. And the only way to really understand 
the upside downness of the kingdom and the upside downness of the Beatitudes that describes it is to understand that this is a roll call of losers. Some of you are greatly comforted by this fact already. The despised, the left behind, the conquered, those who can't even climb the ladder out of the mess they find themselves in. This is the group of people described in the Beatitudes. We talked about um, different interpretations of what it means to be blessed or blessed, if you prefer. Um, And that really it's indicating that God is with or that God is alongside or that God enters into um, or that these people find themselves strangely alongside God in these positions of dependency. What makes each of these groups losers? <laughs> the poor in spirit, the dependent. Um, it goes against the logic of our world. The logic of our world is to become as independent and as strong and as mighty as possible. But the logic of the Beatitudes is that those who find themselves in places where they need to depend on God and others see something in the world and understand something about the world that the rest of us might miss. Those who know what it is to have lost something, those who are mourning and grieving, that in that mourning and grief, they come close to the God who sits at the heart of all things. The meek, again, not the weak, because you can be meek and profoundly strong, but not strong enough um, to beat back everything that oppresses you. But meekness being those who have been brought low despite their best attempts at strengths, at strength, those who have been brought low have been brought close to God. The merciful, those who aren't even opportunistic enough to climb a rung on the ladder over their neighbor, those who continue to show mercy even when it costs them, that God is close to them. The pure in heart, they are who we're talking about today. Blessed, blessed are the pure in heart. Now you've got me self-conscious. I am poor in English. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart's an interesting expression. Um, as soon as we hear the word purity, there's this kind of recoil <laughs> factor. Um, particularly for those of us who've grown up under obsessive legalism. Um, I spent enormous amounts of time um, where my view of God and the universe was this um, kind of tyrannical perfection, um, where if you weren't um, beating yourself down continually for how imperfect you were and for every mistake that you made and the amount of ways that you're missing the mark, then, you know, unless you're really embracing your wormhood, um, that, you know, you're probably risking the wrath of God. But the pure in heart, the expression used here, um, the kind of consensus of scholars is that what it's pointing at is that it's the single-mindedness about doing what is right, even at great cost. Purity in heart, doesn't describe a pharisaic outward show of perfection, ticking all the boxes, making it look like um, you're fitting the pattern. But instead, it's a dogged determination 
to do the right thing by God and others, even if it means falling behind in the process. It describes a person who is single-minded, uncompromising about what they know is right, meeting needs where they see them, and not trampling over others for advantage. The people Jesus was talking to, um, a group of people exiled within their own land under the thumb of empire. There were a whole bunch of different groups swirling around um, looking for solutions to how trapped they were and how trapped they found themselves. There were the Pharisees who um, made great shows of um, how pure and how godly they were. And strangely enough, they're the ones that Jesus went after the most. There were the Sadducees who compromised and worked in with the Roman government and tried to climb the ladder and cut deals. Um, there are the Essenes who escaped to the desert and got away for it all, from it all. But trapped in the middle of all of these groups with this bunch of people, who, this bunch of um, peasants who were slowly losing land to the tax that they had to pay, who were crushed and poor and desperate. Who could have taken opportunities if they wanted to, who could have compromised to gain of those who were even more pitiful than they. The pure in heart were those who refused to sell out their neighbor. But why will the pure in heart see God? What is it about this desire, not just to, I guess, show that you all look like you're doing what is right, but to actually genuinely want to do what is truly good? What is it about that group of people that means that they will see God? It's a strange expression. Does God show up for them in some way that God doesn't for others? In a world where we know you don't really see God, how is it that the pure in heart see God? So we're going to explore this question using two stories. One's from the Bible and the other not. Um, I'm going to get Emma, we're going to get one of our mini Emmas. We're just going to put them on an Emma roster uh, to read from um, Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, which is an incredibly small text, so I can fit it all on one screen. Um, and it's the story of the sheep and the goats. And this ends with um, a jarring proclamation of divine judgment. Um, but I'm going to ask this morning that we don't make that our focus. We've talked about this in the past, and we will in the future, but we can't talk about it every time we get to it. So um, try to immerse yourself in this story without um, focusing on the last sentence. Um, if you would like to, you can do this Lectio Divina style, where you can close your eyes and imagine yourself in this story. Um, you can smell the smells and try and envisage the people and feel like what it might be like to be in the midst of this. Um, if you don't trust the people next to you, don't close your eyes. My advice anyway. Thanks, Emma. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on, the glory, on his glorious throne. Then all nations will be arranged before him and he will sort pe the people out, much as the shepherd sorts out sheep and goats putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Enter, you who are blessed by my father. 
Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation, and here's why. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was, I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then those sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. Then he will turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, get out, worthless goats. You're good for nothing but the fires of hell. And why? Because I was hungry and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was homeless and you gave me no bed. I was shivering and you gave me no clothes. Sick and in prison and you never visited. Then those goats are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick or in prison and didn't help? He will answer them, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. Then those goats will be herded to the eternal doom, but the sheep to the eternal reward. Sit with that as we enter another story. The Emperor's New Clothes. Many years ago, there was an emperor so exceedingly fond of new clothes that he spent all his money on being well-dressed. He cared nothing about reviewing his soldiers, going to the theater, or going for a ride in his carriage, except to show off his new clothes. He had a coat for every hour of the day, and instead of saying, as one might about any other ruler, the kings in council, here they always said, the emperor's in his dressing room. In the great city where he lived, life was always gay. Every day, many strangers came to town, and among them one day came two swindlers. They let it be known they were weavers, and they said they could weave the most magnificent fabrics imaginable. Not only were their colors and patterns uncommonly fine, but clothes made of this cloth had a wonderful way of becoming invisible to anyone who was unfit for his office or who is just unusually stupid. These would be just the clothes for me, thought the emperor. If I wore them... I would be able to discover which men in my empire are unfit for their posts, and I could tell the wise men from the fools. Yes, I certainly must get some of this stuff woven for me right away. He paid the two swindlers a large sum of money to start work at once. They set up two looms and pretended to weave, though there was nothing on the looms. All the finest silk and the purest old thread which they demanded went into their traveling bags, while they worked the empty looms far into the night. I'd like to know how those weavers are getting on with the cloth, the emperor thought. 
but he felt slightly uncomfortable when he remembered that those who were unfit for their position would not be able to see the fabric. It couldn't have been that he doubted himself, yet he thought he'd rather send someone else to see how things were going. The whole town knew about the cloth's peculiar power, and all were impatient to find out how stupid their neighbors were. I'll send my honest old minister to the weavers, the emperor decided. He'll be the best one to tell me how the material looks, for he's a sensible man, and no one does his duty better. So the honest old minister went to the room where the two swindlers sat, working away at their empty looms. Heaven help me, he thought, as his eyes flew wide open. I can't see anything at all. But he did not say so. Both the swindlers begged him to be so kind as to come near to approve the excellent pattern, the beautiful colors. They pointed to the empty looms, and the poor old minister stared as hard as he dared. He couldn't see anything, because there was nothing to see. Heaven have mercy, he thought. Can it be that I'm a fool? I'd never have guessed it, and not a soul must know. Am I unfit to be the minister? It would never do to let, that on, to let on that I can't see the cloth. Don't hesitate to tell us what you think of it, said one of the weavers. Uh, it's beautiful. It's enchanting. The old minister peered through his spectacles. Such a pattern. What colors? I'll be sure to tell the emperor how delighted I am with it. We are pleased to hear that, the swindlers said. They proceeded to name all the colors and to explain the intricate pattern. The old minister paid the closest attention so that he could tell all to the emperor. And so he did. The swindlers at once asked for more money, more silk and gold thread to get on with the weaving, but it all went into their pockets. Not a thread went into the looms, so they worked at their weaving as hard as ever. The emperor presently sent another trustworthy official to see how the work progressed and how soon it would be ready. The same thing happened to him that had happened to the minister. He looked and he looked, but as there was nothing to see in the looms, he couldn't see anything. Isn't it a beautiful piece of goods? The swindlers asked him as they displayed and described their imaginary pattern. I know I'm not stupid, the man thought, so it must be that I'm unworthy of my good office. That's strange. I mustn't let anyone find out, though. So he praised the material he did not see. He declared he was delighted with the beautiful colors and the exquisite pattern. To the emperor he said, it held me spellbound. All the town was talking of the splendid cloth, and the emperor wanted to see it for himself while it was still in the looms. He attended by a band of chosen men, among whom were his two old trusted officials, the ones who had been to the weavers. He set out to see the two swindlers. He found them weaving with might and main, but without a thread in their looms. Magnificent, said the two officials already duped. Just look, your majesty, what colors, what a design. They pointed to the empty looms, each supposing that the others could see the stuff. What's this? thought the emperor. I can't see anything. This is terrible. Am I a fool? Am I unfit to be the emperor? What a thing to happen to me of all people. Oh, it's very pretty, he said. It has my highest approval. And he nodded approbation at the empty loom. Nothing could make him say that he couldn't see anything. His whole retinue stared and stared. One, one saw no more than another, 
but they all joined the emperor in exclaiming, oh, it's very pretty. And they advised him to wear clothes made of this wonderful cloth, especially for the great procession he was soon to lead. Magnificent, excellent, unsurpassed, were bandied from mouth to mouth, and everyone did his best to seem well pleased. The emperor gave each of the swindlers a cross to wear in his buttonhole, and the title of Sir Weaver. Before the procession, the swindlers sat up all night and burned more than six candles to show how busy they were finishing the emperor's new clothes. They pretended to take the cloth off the loom. They made cuts in the air with huge scissors. And at last they said, Now the emperor's new clothes are ready for him. Then the emperor himself came with his noblest noblemen, and the swindlers each raised an arm as if they were holding something. They said, These are the trousers, here's the coat, and this is the mantle, naming each garment. All of them are as light as a spider web. One would almost think he had nothing on, but that's what makes them so fine. Exactly, all the noblemen agreed, although they could see nothing, for there was nothing to see. If your imperial majesty will condescend to take your clothes off, said the swindlers, we will help you, we will help you on with your new ones here right in front of the long mirror. The emperor undressed, and the swindlers pretended to put his new clothes on him, one garment after another. They took him around the waist and seemed to be fastening something, that this was his train as the emperor turned round and round before the looking glass. How well your majesty's new clothes look, aren't they becoming, he heard on all sides. That pattern, so perfect, those colors, so suitable, it is a magnificent outfit. Then the Minister for Public Processions announced, Your Majesty's canopy is waiting outside. Well, I'm supposed to be ready, the Emperor said, and turned again for one last look in the mirror. It is a remarkable fit, isn't it? He seemed to regard his costume with the greatest interest. The noblemen, who were to carry his train, stooped low and reached for the floor as if they were picking up his mantle. Then they pretended to lift it and hold it high. They didn't dare admit that they had nothing to hold. So off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy. Everyone in the streets and the windows said, Oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes. Don't they fit him to perfection and see his long train? Nobody would confess that he couldn't see anything, for that would prove him either unfit for his position or a fool. No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a complete success. But he hasn't got anything on, a little child said. Oh, did you ever hear such innocent prattle, said its father. One person whispered to another what the child had said. He, he hasn't got anything on. A, a child says he hasn't got anything on. But he hasn't got anything on, the whole town cried out at last. The emperor shivered for he suspected they were right. But he thought, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. I think Warwick deserves a clap for that reading. <laughs> Thank you. So, 
this story, and this one. What parallels can we find in the two? What things do you notice that overlap? This is sharing time, if anyone would like to chip in. It's not just a rhetorical question. I don't have to have the whole answer. But what overlaps do we see in the stories? Um, there's this, um, the sorting of the worthy and the unworthy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, it's sort of about collective values, the way that we in our world um, construct power and status and kind of buy into that. The power structures that we sort of both create and um, almost unconsciously participate in. This is good. Lots of perplexed looks. This is what I like. Um, I think what struck me about the Emperor's New Clothes, which I've forgotten about, was the child willing to be the one to question. So the fact that it was everyone, all these adults were all complicit in this lie because we were scared of being found out and it takes a kind of the vulnerability of a child to go, hang on, this isn't right. And then there's something about this as well where, you know, we often feel as though there's a way to be, which is that we should be looking after ourselves and acquiring more stuff and you have to really have that almost that um, naivety and as, as a child to go, is this actually the right way to live? Mm. It's a bit like the child and the... Um Emperor's clothes is like, you know, the whole Steve Jobs thing where at Apple they'd always bring to like the top CEO meetings or whatever, their leadership team would always bring in like the most newest of the newbie intern and then like on this like 18-year-old's first day there'd be like the Apple CEOs and stuff saying, so what do you think's wrong with the business? Um, because the closer you get to the top, the more inclined you are to just be like, everything's fine, you look great, yeah, you're butt naked, but when you're starting out, you have less of a stake in it, and so you can actually really effectively and efficiently point out the holes in the fabric, as it were. Um, and then, you know, in this story, it's that just the classic Jesus, you think that it's going to be the people who are, you know, talking into the microphone or whatever that are the closest to that um, essence of the kingdom. But it's probably old mate playing with the scrunchy stuff <laughs> on the floor behind me, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
Very good. Just to add to that, the child, I mean, the child's innocent and has a pure heart and is not afraid to speak up because doesn't really know the fear of um, speaking up about what is really a fact, really what they see, and then everybody else after that is able to speak up. Good. When you think about loss and gain, loss and gain, and the emperor's new clothes, who's got something to lose? The adults. Who's got nothing to lose? The kid. Who can see? Who can see in this story? Whether they know it or not, who sees God in this story? We'll get we'll get the microphone on that because that's worth hearing. Yeah, it's really fascinating, isn't it? I love it. Um, they didn't think they saw, but they actually did see Jesus, and he reminded them of that by their their actions showed that they saw him. And uh, yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> Where is God in the story? In the needy. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was homeless, I was shivering, I was sick, I was in prison. Let's sit with this verse 44. The goat's going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick and in prison and didn't help? Whenever you fail to do one of these things to someone who's being overlooked or, or ignored, that was me. I imagine, and this is speculation, but I imagine a follow-up sentence to that could be, if we knew it was you, we definitely would have done something. <laughs> It literally never occurred to me before that the whole thing about the Son of Man arriving, blazing in beauty and all these angels with him, that that Jesus is sort of saying, that is the emperor's new clothes, that's not me. And it never occurred to me that, that the Son of Man arriving, Jesus is basically setting up a trap for his listeners going, now of course this is what's going to happen, this is where you're going to see God when God arrives from the sky in this kind of beautiful array and surrounded by angels. It's a, yeah, an important people. It's a total trap going, no, stop looking up into the sky. It's never going to happen. Yeah. Blessed are the pure in heart, but they will see God. In this story, the people who see God, even without realizing it, are those 
who are so pure in heart that they help those and see those they have nothing to gain from. The goats, well, if we knew it was you, surely we would have done something. I mean, we're not going to overlook you. But Jesus is going, no. If you're constantly calculating what you have to gain and lose, that's not single-minded determination to do what's right. And I am with those who are doggedly determined. Regardless of what they gain or lose, to do the right thing, to help those who need it, to see the overlooked. And you're a loser because you're going to get left behind. The economy of this world will not recognize you and get used to that. But behind that fabric, behind that veneer, the deep logic of the universe is that there is a God who draws all things to the good. And every time, regardless of where there is reward or recognition or blazing glory or not, we continue to do the small things and notice the small people. Then somehow we see God in that process. Sometimes it's really convenient not to see things. But if God is with those who have been brought low, it may well cost us to see God there. But if we dwell on those places, we will see God. God is hidden in places it is convenient not to look. The promise here, and it's not always that comforting, is that God sees and God knows what you have lost and what you have missed out on. But you have gained the kingdom in the process. You can see the inner logic of the universe. You can touch the God who tirelessly works underneath it all to draw all things towards good. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Take heart, you who are determined to do what is right, even at great cost, for you will be able to see where God dwells amongst the poor and the lowly and know what God cares about. Take heart, for you are blessed, and God is with you. Take heart. Be of great courage as you go about doing the things that are overlooked, where you don't take shortcuts to trample over others, where you notice the things that are inconvenient to notice in the world. Take heart, because there you find God. For there you feed Jesus. But there, you befriend the Spirit. We are going to eat and drink this morning. Um, and our custom with this is to gather around a table. And conveniently, here's one. Um, and we eat and drink the body and blood of the greatest loser of all the one shamed and crucified, the conqueror who couldn't conquer, the Messiah 
who gave up his life. And we share in that. Uh, if this meal is just crackers and juice to you, that is okay. You can still participate. If you need to, close, if you need to cross your fingers behind your back while you take it, that's all right too. Um, if you wish to not participate at all, that is totally fine. Um, if this is something of sacred and of deep meaning to you, then join in as well. Um, but we'll gather around the table and I'll pray. Jesus, we all know how the world works. We swim in it. And sometimes it's so easy for that to be all we see. But we ask that you give us eyes to see what lies beneath the upside down. Let us see where you dwell. For every person here who has given up things of great cost that no one sees. Let them take heart. Continue to show yourself for all of us who need forgiveness because it's constantly overlooking you. Give us grace, give us mercy. Let us be courageous in doing small things. In your loving name, amen. Let's eat and drink together.